Welcome to the AAP Board Review Series. This is an educational podcast series that covers high-yield topics in physical medicine and rehabilitation. My name is Chris Andriano. I'm a PM&R resident at Wayne State University and Detroit Medical Center in Michigan. And I am Michael Pham, also a PM&R resident at the DMC in Detroit, Michigan. In this episode, we are covering some high-yield points about radiculopathy, from pertinent anatomy, presentation, and what to expect on electrodiagnostic evaluation. We'll try and make this digestible for some of those who are still learning EMGs, but we'll also try and put in some clinical pearls for those who have more experience, so hopefully we can all learn something. Before we begin, we'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Jeffrey K. Seidel and Dr. Ryan Castora from our residency program here at the DMC for reviewing this episode. And now a quick disclaimer. The AAP Board Review Series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policies of any entity. Content for this series is based off of current PM&R learning materials and is created by residents for residents. It is not an official board review study guide. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's get started. Radicular symptoms are frequently seen in the EMG lab for evaluation of radiculopathy. This is defined as a pathological process occurring at the spinal nerve root level. Classically, patients may have some degree of axial pain with a component of pain extending into the limb, and in an ideal world, having paresthesias in a defined dermatomal distribution. The most frequent causes of radiculopathy include herniated nucleus pulposus and spinal stenosis, causing compression of the nerve roots. Other causes include inflammatory radiculitis, nerve root sheath cyst, aka Tarlov cyst, facet synovial cyst, malignancy, and infection, just to name a few. Mike, do you want to go over some pertinent anatomy? Yeah, of course. So let's imagine the spinal anatomy. It consists of the spinal canal, neuroforamen, and the intervertebral discs. The spinal nerves sit in the neuroforamen, consisting of the dorsal and ventral rami, which then unite to become a mixed nerve. The most important takeaway and how it relates to EMGs is the location of the dorsal root ganglia, which is relatively distal from the spinal cord. The DRG resides in the lateral recess of the neuroforaminal space, so if there is a disc herniation, the sensory lower motor neurons distal to the DRG are preserved. This means that the sensory nerve conductions are normal in radiculopathy. Well said, Mike. Think that builds a great framework for understanding radiculopathies. Okay, let's get started with our first case. Our first patient is Mr. Sai Attica. He is a 45-year-old male who comes to your EMG lab because he has chronic back pain, exacerbated by shooting pain down the right leg after helping one of his friends move about a month ago. It's associated with numbness and paresthesias over the top of his foot and subjective leg weakness. How would you approach the evaluation of this patient? So this patient has symptoms consistent with radiculopathy. I like to first break down the likely etiologies by age. Patients younger than 50 years old tend to have more disc herniations, whereas the older patients, above 50 years old, will more likely have symptoms relating to arthritis such as degenerative spinal stenosis. This patient is 45 years old, so I'm leaning more towards a disc herniation. The majority of disc herniations occur at the L4, L5, and L5-S1 levels, affecting the L5 and S1 nerve roots, respectively. After the common etiologies, we can expand the differentials, which are quite vast and include uncommon causes, but that is beyond the scope of this podcast. Overall, it is important to assess for red flags that may suggest malignancy, fracture, cardioquinus syndrome, myelopathy, or infection. 
Also, it's important to mention, especially as a PM&R physician, to assess for peripheral nerve injury or musculoskeletal related disorders, especially since up to a third of patients getting evaluations for lumbosacral radiculopathies may have concomitant musculoskeletal issues. Love it. So what might a typical exam look like? My physical exam is generally focused and relatively brief when setting up an EMG. I may test major muscle groups functionally with heel and toe walking, single leg standing, and squats. With smaller muscles, I'll pay close attention to side-to-side -side comparisons to pick up on subtle weaknesses. Next, I'll check deep tendon reflexes in the lower extremities, focusing on quads, internal hamstrings, and Achilles reflexes, which test the L4, L5, and S1 nerve roots, respectively. In the upper extremities, obtaining reflexes of the biceps, brachioradialis, and triceps, which test the C5, C6, and C7 nerve roots, respectively, as well. Finally, I would evaluate sensation by assessing dermatomes and checking for distal gradient changes. Having focal weakness with sensory loss or diminished reflexes has been found to dramatically increase likelihood of radiculopathy, confirmed by needle testing. Of course, I may add on more depending on the patient, but that's generally a good starting point for me. I like your standard exam, Mike. Motor weakness or a loss of reflex is quite telling if it fits a myotomal pattern. Now expanding on your sensory exam, there are several different ways to test sensation which include light touch, pinprick, i.e. pain, temperature, vibration sense, and joint position. Now to tie in a little anatomy here, when we separate the large and small sensory nerve fibers, we can isolate these on our exam. Small fiber nerves carry pinprick and temperature sensation. Large fibers carry positional sense and vibration. I memorize this by thinking of the spinal thalamic pathway of pain and temperature to be small fiber and that makes it easy for me to remember the rest. I didn't mention light touch because that is carried by both small and large fibers. So when I do my exam, I include pinprick and vibration as I find them relatively quick to do, and we'll test the different pool of nerve fibers. If I find something I'm trying to sort out, I'll add proprioception or temperature to my exam to make myself feel more or less confident in the finding. Okay, so back to the case. Mr. Sai Attica had symptoms over the top of his foot. What might you expect on your exam? The top of the foot is consistent with the L5 distribution. I might see abnormality in heel walking, single leg stand, i.e. Trendelenburg sign, or weakness in the ankle dorsiflexors, foot eversion, or in toe extension. They may also have a diminished internal hamstring reflex and loss of pinprick over the L5 distribution, which I commonly test directly over the tibialis anterior muscle or dorsal aspect of the foot. If I were doing an expanded exam, I may also see neural tension signs on the slump test or straight leg raise. That's wonderful, Mike. You know exactly what to look for. Okay, let's move on to the nerve conduction test. What could you expect on testing? Radiculopathies will generally have normal nerve conduction testing. The primary purpose is to rule out peripheral mononeuropathies, plexopathies, and polyneuropathies. Essentially, to get an understanding of the general health of the peripheral nerves. If this was a significant injury to the axon at the nerve root level, we could see diminished amplitudes of the CMAPs and the L5 myotome, often assessed when evaluating the peroneal motor nerve to the EDB or anterior tibialis, as opposed to the tibial motor nerve, which originates from the S1 myotome. We wouldn't expect to have significant slowing in the demyelinating range to the CMAPs either, since we are talking about an axonal type of injury. As a general rule of thumb, less than 30 meters per second in the lower extremities and less than 35 meters per second in the upper extremities would be consistent with demyelinating types of injuries. Lastly, when evaluating the sensory nerves, or SNAPs, 
The electromyographer should evaluate the sensory nerves that innervate the distribution of symptoms. In this case, the superficial peroneal nerve distribution would be over the dorsum of the foot. To make a final point, radiculopathies should have complete sparing of the sensory nerves. Well said. So radiculopathies will have essentially normal nerve conduction studies, except in some more severe cases where the CMAPs may show an axonal injury pattern with diminished amplitudes. SNAPs are spared, as far as boards are concerned. Nerve root injuries, and even nerve root avulsions, will have normal sensory nerve conduction studies. Now, for those advanced electromyographers out there, there have been reports of radiculopathies, especially to the L5 nerve root, and they may have diminished, but not absent, amplitudes in the sensory distribution compared to the unaffected side. And that's in a small portion of the population. The main thought process behind that is it may relate to the aberrant position of the DRG. If there are diminished snaps, despite these reports, you're going to have to have plexopathy on the differential. But again, remember, as far as boards are concerned, snaps are going to be spared in radiculopathies. Okay. Any other special testing you may find valuable in this case, Mike? The only other nerve study I might perform is the H-reflex. As we talked about before, it may suggest an S1 radiculopathy, but wouldn't be diagnostic on its own. Again, an abnormal value is greater than 1.8 meters per second difference on the affected side when compared to the unaffected side. F-waves and somatosensory evoked potentials, or SSEPs, are not helpful for evaluating radiculopathies due to low sensitivities. The raw meat and potatoes in evaluating radiculopathies are all in the needle exam. That's exactly right. We would never do an electrodiagnostic study without assessing the nerve conductions. But in this case, the highest diagnostic yield will be seen on the needle exam. How would you approach the needle exam? A good screen should include six muscles in the limb, including the paraspinals. If paraspinals aren't included, eight muscles are recommended to avoid false negatives. The screen should include muscles in different nerve root levels and peripheral nerves. I think that's a really high-yield clinical statement you just made, Mike, and one that was made in Dr. Dillingham's Radiculopathy A and EM monograph. An optimal screen with paraspinals is six muscles. And if the paraspinals are omitted, then evaluation of eight muscles will improve sensitivities of the exam, specifically for radiculopathies. So what changes might you pick up on EMG? I would expect to see findings consistent with neuropathic injury. Generally, we can group findings into denervation and re-innervation changes to keep it simple. Denervation changes include positive sharp waves and fibrillations. These must be firing regularly, and generally fibrillations are considered more reliable than positive sharp waves. Typically, these findings are hard to argue, meaning they are easier to identify so when present, the specificity for radiculopathy is high. You can expect to see this sort of spontaneous activity at 2-3 to three weeks post-injury, depending on how distal the muscle is from the nerve root. This is easy to remember since we recommend performing EMGs at three weeks to ensure adequate time for these abnormalities to manifest. Reinnervation changes include polyphagia, increased duration, and increased amplitude. These you can expect to see after six weeks, generally speaking. When we see polyphagia, that goes hand in hand with increased duration. Basically, the firing of the muscle isn't quite as synchronous as an uninjured motor unit because of terminal nerve collateral sprouting. Increased amplitudes occur once new nerve fibers which have re-innervated the muscles have matured causing the motor units to fire more synchronously. This results in larger amplitudes because now that one motor unit is innervating more muscle fibers than it was before. Classically, large amplitude motor units are seen in post-polio patients. In these cases, so many motor units are lost and the ones that survive end up re-innervating all the muscle fibers they can as a way for the body to maintain strength.
The result are massive motor units that now innervate about five times the amount of muscle fibers they once did. Really interesting. Okay, so let me get this straight in my head. At three weeks, we see spontaneous activity, such as positive sharp waves and fibrillations. And like you said, this is when we recommend EMGs to be performed. More proximal muscles, like the paraspinals, will have this sooner, around one week, as Wallerian degeneration affects the proximal muscles sooner. After six weeks, there is re -innervation. And finally, after six months, there will be increased amplitudes as the nerve fiber matures and begins to fire more synchronously. That seems easy enough to remember. Three, six, six. Three weeks, six weeks, six months. But there are more findings on needle exam, right Mike? Yeah, there are. So first, let's talk about recruitment. We'll see a decreased recruitment right away. Basically, the motor unit has to fire faster until the next motor unit comes in. I think of it as a truck that has a few gears taken out of its transmission. If you're trying to get on the highway, but you're missing the second and third gear, you'll hear the engine fire very fast to go from the first to the fourth gear smoothly. This is exactly what happens in a neuropathic injury. Motor units are taken out, so now to recruit the next motor unit, instead of firing at 10 hertz to bring in that second motor unit, you may have to fire at 30 hertz until that second motor unit kicks in. Basically, you'll hear very fast firing motor units. This is something that we'd be able to detect right away, because if you transected a nerve, you wouldn't have any transmission of signal immediately following injury, so this is an immediate response to a loss of nerve conduction. Unfortunately, I don't have a good way of remembering when CMAP amplitudes will decrease, but this is the time period between immediate post-injury to the first signs of spontaneous activity on EMG needle exam. So we're talking about half a week or four days as per Cucurulo. That's great, Mike. Thanks for that awesome explanation. Okay, now that we've talked about what we'd find on needle EMG, how would you make the diagnosis of radiculopathy? Neuropathic changes should be seen in muscles that belong to the same myotome or nerve root in at least two different peripheral nerve distributions. Additionally, there should be normal needle findings in adjacent levels. An example of this would be positive EMG findings of the anterior tibialis, gluteus medius, medial hamstring, and normal findings in the quad, gastrocnemius, and lateral hamstring. I really like that phrasing, Mike. At least two different muscles in the same nerve root distribution in at least two different peripheral nerves. That does make sense. You want to make sure you're not isolating a problem in a peripheral nerve, and same goes for describing adjacent levels as normal, as you might see in something that's a bit more widespread like in the polyneuropathies. Can we give another example of this for our listeners to really bring this point home on how to make the diagnosis? Absolutely. Okay, let's say we're doing the upper extremities and we start with the deltoids. This is innervated by the C5, C6 nerve roots, predominantly C5 though, and our exam is normal. Then we move on to the biceps brachii, also C5, C6, but predominantly C6 here. This is normal as well. From this information, we can safely say that C5 is normal. Next is the pronator teres. This is innervated by the C6, C7 nerve roots, often having equal contributions from both. I may start thinking that this is a C6, C7 nerve root issue due to dual contribution, but C6 is less likely due to the normal biceps exam. However, isolated finding in one muscle is not diagnostic on its own and has uncertain clinical significance. So let's continue with our root screen. The triceps brachii is evaluated next. This muscle is innervated by the C6 to C8 nerve roots, but predominantly the C7 nerve root. We also find neuropathic changes such as positive sharp waves and fibrillations. Okay, so now we found two different muscles overlapping in the C7 nerve distribution in two different peripheral nerves. 
the pronator teres being the median nerve and the triceps being the radial nerve. This is starting to be consistent with a radiculopathy. However, we need to complete the root screen to ensure there's not something more widespread occurring. The FDI is evaluated, innervated by the C8-T1 nerve roots, primarily C8, and this is negative. The APB is then evaluated, which is innervated by the C8-T1 nerve roots, primarily T1 here, and it's also negative. Lastly, the cervical paraspinals are evaluated, showing positive sharp waves and fibrillations. Okay, so just to sum up, we have the triceps, pronator teres, and the paraspinals with neuropathic changes. In the setting of a normal nerve conduction test, this evaluation is consistent with a C7 radiculopathy. Yeah, hopefully laying out this thought process is helpful. Me too. Alright, so we spoke about paraspinals in our example, but let's get into it. How does the evaluation of paraspinals play a role in the diagnosis of radiculopathy? Paraspinals can help us localize the lesion to the nerve root level. However, it's very much a supportive role and does not make the diagnosis all on its own. The reason for this is multifaceted. It can be easy to falsely identify positive sharp waves and fibrillations. As we discussed earlier, true positive sharp waves and fibs are regularly firing potentials. Unfortunately, distant motor units can be mistaken for positive sharp waves and fibs, but these will fire irregularly. So the pattern of firing is very important. Additionally, there can be positive sharp waves or fibs if there is a history of lumbar puncture, spinal surgery, spinal cancers, and ALS. The last thing to note about paraspinals is that we do not assess voluntary motor units as recruitment and polyphagia are not well established in the paraspinals. If there are positive sharp waves and fibs or complex repetitive discharges present in the paraspinals with matching limb EMG findings, it does support radiculopathy. In total, there should be at least two muscles with concordant findings to make the diagnosis. Well said, Mike. Adding paraspinals helps localize lesions to the nerve root level and supports the diagnosis of radiculopathy. To note, in the lumbar spine, abnormalities in the paraspinals can be at or three levels above the nerve root level. So in essence, an S1 radiculopathy may actually have findings in the lower lumbar paraspinal region. Now, beyond the boards, there are some electromyographers who evaluate the paraspinals by performing paraspinal mapping to support the diagnosis of lumbar spinal stenosis. Typically, you may see bilateral myotomal involvement and an abnormal H reflex in the setting of lumbar spinal stenosis. However, that's beyond the contents of this podcast. All right, let's head back to the case of Mr. Sai Attica. So on needle exam, you see positive sharp waves and fibrillations on the tensor fasciolata, extensor hallucis longus, and paraspinals. Decreased recruitment with no polyphagia or increased duration in the motor unit action potentials an otherwise nerve conduction study and remaining root screen was normal. Ah, so that confirms my suspicion of the L5 radiculopathy. In this case, there is denervation without evidence of reinnervation. This is actually consistent with the time of injury being about a month ago. Fortunately, positive electrodiagnostic findings are predictive of improved prognostic outcomes. Great job, Mike. Never had any doubt. I think we now understand the fundamentals of electrodiagnostic evaluation in the setting of radiculopathy. What do you think we do a lightning round to highlight some of these high yield points? Okay, let's do it. If there's a disc herniation at C6, C7, what nerve root is affected? That would be the C7 nerve root. In the cervical spine, the nerve root exits above the corresponding pedicle. C7 is actually the most common radiculopathy, followed by C6. Perfect. Brings me to my next question. In C7 radiculopathies, 
what reflex is diminished, and which muscle might you test on EMG. The triceps reflex is diminished in C7. On EMG, I can needle the triceps, extensor digitorum communis, flexor carpi radialis, as relatively pure C7 innervated muscles. Additionally, I may include the pronator teres with the caveat that it has C6 C7 innervation. That's great! And how about a C6 radiculopathy? The brachioradialis reflex would be diminished. I would needle the biceps, brachioradialis, and again the pronator teres. Okay. Moving on to the lumbar spine, let's say there's an L5-S1 disc herniation. What nerve root is affected? Typically, this would affect the S1 nerve root. In the lumbar spine, the nerve root exits below the corresponding pedicle. In the lumbar spine, the L5 and S1 nerve roots are the most commonly affected. Excellent, Mike. And couldn't help but notice you said typically L5-S1 affects the S1 nerve root. So. What situations might this not be the case? Good observation, Chris. So typically, the posterior lateral herniation is the most common direction of herniation. However, if there's a far lateral disc herniation with superior migration, you can expect the L5 nerve root to be affected. If there's a central herniation, this could have variable compression on the nerve roots. Let's say we look at the L3 to L4 level. If there's a central herniation there, you can affect nerve roots such as L5 or S1. Alright, so to reiterate, posterior lateral herniation will match the lower vertebral body. So, L4, L5 herniation will affect the L5 level. If there's a far lateral disc herniation with superior migration, it'll match the upper vertebral body. So, an L4, L5 herniation will affect the L4 nerve root. And if it's central, could be variable, so L4, L5 may affect the S1 or lower nerve roots. That's right, Chris. Okay, now it's my turn to ask the questions. Let's go over some of the dual innervated muscles. In the arm, what muscles are innervated by the ulnar and median nerve? Dual innervation nerves include the FDP, the flexor digitorum profundus, the lumbricals, and the FPB, or the flexor pollicis brevis. Perfect. What nerves innervate the brachialis? Brachialis is innervated by the musculocutaneous and the radial nerve. How about the pectoralis major? The pectoralis major is innervated by the lateral and medial pectoral nerves. The medial pectoral nerve will also innervate the pec minor. Okay, let's look at the lower extremities. What muscle has dual innervation there? That would be the largest and most powerful adductor muscle, the adductor magnus. It takes innervation from the obturator nerve and the tibial portion of the sciatic nerve. Great. And lastly, what is unique about the short head of the biceps femoris? The short head of the biceps femoris, which is part of the lateral hamstrings, is useful because it's innervated by the peroneal nerve above the fibular head. The long head of the biceps femoris is innervated by the tibial nerve. The nerve roots of the lateral hamstring are L5-S1. Perfect. Alright, so we covered a lot today, Chris. Any final remarks about electrodiagnostic testing of radiculopathies? Yeah, we sure did cover a lot. 
The last thing I'd like to mention is talking about the diagnostic yield in doing EMGs for radiculopathies. When there are confirmed EMG findings, this is very specific for radiculopathy. If identifying a radiculopathy as having positive sharp waves and fibrillations in two limb muscles, with or without the paraspinals, or even one limb muscle plus the corresponding paraspinal muscle, specificity was reported to be 100% in the AANEM monograph I mentioned earlier. Specificity decreases when just using polyphagia as a metric. So, specificity is high, but unfortunately, the sensitivity of EMGs is modest, closer to 50-75%. to 75%. You can imagine that if someone has a radiculopathy isolated to the sensory nerve roots, you would have a negative EMG study, despite their classic symptoms. Interesting. So how does advanced imaging like MRIs play a role in the diagnosis? That's a really great question, Mike. MRIs, as we know, are very sensitive to pick up structural abnormalities and often have false positives. A lot of times the clinical relevance of these findings is unclear. EMGs on the other side is very specific in terms of radiculopathies. I think in many ways the MRI studies and electrodiagnostic testing is quite complementary to each other. MRIs provide the structural information while EMGs reveal the physiological information of the peripheral nerves at times able to place the imaging findings into context of the greater clinical picture. That's a really great way to think of it. Okay, I feel like now's a good time to quickly sum up the highlights on radiculopathy. Yeah, definitely. So, the key to understanding electrodiagnostic testing is learning the anatomy, cold, from the nerve root, plexus, peripheral nerves, to the muscles. Knowing the dual innervated muscles will be helpful as well. Second is understanding the pathology of radiculopathies. Pathology will be isolated to the nerve roots. Most cases are due to disc herniations or spinal stenosis. Needle exam will be consistent with the neuropathic lesion, in essence showing positive sharp waves, fibrillations, decreased recruitment, and depending on when the injury occurred, polyphagia, increased duration, and increased amplitude. Again, nerve conduction studies in most cases are normal. But if it is severe enough, you will see an axonal injury pattern on the motor nerve conduction studies. In essence, decreased amplitudes. You're not going to see a demyelinating pattern such as that with low conduction velocities as the injury is quite proximal compared to where you're assessing the nerves, which is quite distal. And on sensory nerve conductions, expect those to be normal. Now on to making the diagnosis of radiculopathy you're going to need at least two muscles in a limb to be abnormal. These should be in different peripheral nerve distributions, assessing the same nerve root. Additionally, the adjacent nerve root levels should be normal. Paraspinals, much like the H-reflex, plays a supportive role in the diagnosis and cannot be used alone to diagnose radiculopathy. Lastly is the time course of the needle exam findings. I think of 366. Three weeks until positive sharp waves and fibrillations reach the distal muscles. Six weeks until reinnervation take place, i.e. you may start seeing some polyphagia and increased duration. Now, recruitment, that's seen immediately. And CMAP amplitudes, those change a few days after. About four days until it's seen on nerve conduction study. That's an excellent overview. Thanks, Chris. And thank you all for joining us again on the AAP Board Review Series. 
We hope you found this episode especially helpful. For you budding electromyographers out there, besides utilization of Cucurullo and the Preston and Shapiro EMG textbook, we recommend reading the two-part series published by Dr. Timothy Dillingham on radiculopathy, which is included in the Muscle and Nerve Journal and included in the AANEM monograph in 2020. Again, another big thanks to Dr. Jeffrey K. Seidel and Dr. Ryan Castoro for reviewing this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Beckwith and Dr. Gill for facilitating this excellent podcast review series. Again, this is Michael Pham and Chris Andriano, and we are signing, signing out. out.